Amen. Good morning, church. Well, you know, among all the things that uh, you did this week, this, um, this thing that we're doing here this morning is pretty unique. I would uh, wager guys that you didn't, uh, for the most part, get together with another group of people and uh, sing and pray to God. It's a unique thing that we do when we gather together like this to actually uh, worship him in this way. And uh, Rory Nolan, who's written a great book on worship, uh, defines worship, and I'm talking about this community, corporate act of gathering together to worship in this way. He defines it this way, worship is the actual act of expressing love, praise, and adoration to God. And if our heart's in the right place, if we're genuinely followers of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we have been doing. Uh, over the last little while here uh, this morning. And today's passage uh, that's in front of us is exactly what the people in the passage were doing. They were worshiping uh, Jesus in a pretty uh, unique way. And Jesus entered Jerusalem in our passage on what is uh, often called the triumphal entry or um, Palm Sunday. And you know that we've never been very good here um, and not given any attention at all to the church calendar. So Palm Sunday, we overshot by six weeks, okay? But here we are at the passage now in our study of Luke. Uh, and so this is just days before his crucifixion and all that's going to happen. It's the start of the climactic conclusion to the mission of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the inauguration, the start of what is called Passion Week, and the people cried out as he entered the city in worship and, and praise. And in verse 38, we'll read the whole passage in a moment, but verse 38, they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus Christ is the king. He's the reason why we've come here to worship today. And in many ways, we understand that better than those crowds did at that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so he is the king, and the implication of him being the king should not be lost on us. It is this. If he is the king, then we are his subjects. We are subject to him in every way. And we're going to see several traits of the king as, as he makes his entrance into Jerusalem in this narrative that are going to inform us as to what it really looks like when we are his subjects, when we pledge our allegiance to this king, what's that really look like in our lives? That's what we're going to go after here. And, and so let's read the passage together and I'll, I'll pray for us and we'll get started on it. But uh, this is uh, Luke 19, Luke 19, 28 uh, to 40. And when he had said these things, he, Jesus, went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, uh, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, um, reading your word now, we understand, we ought to understand uh, what Psalm 119 says, how sweet are your words uh, to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouths. And Father, I pray that in these moments you would feed us, you would teach us, you would rebuke us, you would encourage us, you would show us your way, and that we would be eager to obey it, to follow and to see our lives transformed by your word and the work of your spirit in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go after this. Uh, You're going to say this for yourself, obviously. Uh, I must bless the king because, four reasons. I must bless the king uh, because, first of all, um, his mission is clear. Uh, There's no equivocation, no wavering whatsoever in Jesus. He is resolute in his mission, always was and is at this very moment. His mission was made plain over and over again throughout the entire gospel. And I would say, if we could just get to an application point, right? right, Everybody wants to follow a leader who knows where they're going and what they're doing and knows why they're going there and why they're doing it. Everybody wants that kind of leader. And listen, Jesus was exactly that kind of leader. He knew what his mission was. It was clear. And uh, throughout the gospel, if you don't mind me kind of reviewing some things that we've already seen in Luke's gospel about the resolute nature of his mission. In chapter 9, verse 31, he spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, about to accomplish. He knew he had to go to Jerusalem. That was 10 chapters ago. The whole thing was pointing to Jerusalem. Again, in chapter 9, verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, uh, 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. This is the mission the entire time. Again, in chapter 13, verse 33, he said, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So he knew he was going there to die. And he knew it had to happen in Jerusalem. Chapter 17, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He spent most of his ministry time in those regions, but now he was heading to Jerusalem. Um, chapter 18, 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. And then right in this same chapter uh, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And it's all fulfilled. All of the waiting, all of the clear missional talk, it's all going to happen now. Verse 28, and when he had said these things, 
Now, when you're asking the question, what things is he talking about? Could it be the things that are right in the immediate context? But here in verse 28, I really believe when he said everything that he said, it refers to the entirety of the gospel, all the teaching he had done, all the miracles he had performed, all of it was now focused on Jerusalem. When he had said these things, everything he said in the gospel, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. His mission was clear. He was to give his life on the cross as the substitute for us. He was to shed his blood that our sins could be forgiven. He was to be raised from the dead so that the power of death and the grave would be reversed. And from our perspective, we look back on all of this. Now we go, mission accomplished. He did it. He accomplished everything. And yet there's so much more to it. Because we understand, yes, he accomplished his mission in terms of giving his life and being raised from the dead. He accomplished the mission in, in terms of getting into the city of Jerusalem and getting to all of these things. But is the mission fully accomplished? We, we would look at it and go, well, I don't think so. Not yet, because this past week, I was still struggling with sin. And anybody else struggle with sin this week? Anybody? Anybody? I'll put two hands up because... You know, that covers me and someone else who didn't put their hand up. <laughs> and we're still battling it out here. So the mission in many ways not fully accomplished because I am not yet fully redeemed. So I'm looking for more. Plus, last I checked, lots of people still don't believe in Jesus. Lots of people still haven't heard the gospel, still haven't responded to it. So the mission is far from over. And in fact, at his ascension, you know, Jesus said this, he commissioned his disciples. Acts 1.8 says, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, that's the uh, surrounding area, and to the ends of the earth, that's Barrie, Ontario, to the ends of the earth, everywhere in the world where the gospel is not yet proclaimed, it must be proclaimed. So his mission is clear and write this down. So is mine. His mission is clear and so is mine. That Acts 1-8 commission is for me. It's for you. We're to be the witnesses who take this gospel to the world that, ne that needs to hear it. The king has invited us, compelled us, commissioned us to be on mission with him. And that mission is ongoing. Just this past week, you know, uh, now most of you will know that our office uh, for the church here is across the parking lot in the other building. And we just got into that a few weeks ago. Uh, so I, I crossed the parking lot. I needed to come over to this building for, for some reason. I crossed the parking lot. I came in. And when I come over here often during the week, what you'll find is, uh, Thomas, who's our facilities director, has a team of people who clean this building, which is awesome. And, and so one of those uh, faithful servants who was here just like vacuuming, and I'm just kind of walking by, and I said hi to her. And then she says, oh, pastor, I got a question for you. And, and, the, and the question was this. I have a family member who's an atheist, and he tries to challenge me all the time about my faith. And lately... And maybe some of you have had similar conversations. Lately, he's thrown these up in my face. Humboldt and Young Street. And where's your God? Anybody else? 
Had a conversation like that? Where's your God? Why doesn't he stop this? Why does he allow this? And there are so many people like that. And our mission is to take the gospel to people just like that, who are asking very challenging, very difficult questions. When you have somebody who's pointing to these tragedies and saying, where is your God? The answer, of course, is our God is right here and he's on mission seeking to tell us about the hope that he has for us. In fact, it was the hockey ministry's international chaplain at the vigil at the Humboldt Arena. Just, just what is it? What was it? A day after or two days after the accident. Sean Brando is his name. And he said in that public vigil, people have said, where's my God? And I tell them he was right there. He's right there. He's right here with us. God weeps with us in our tragedies. He, he, he weeps with us over our sorrows. He, 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 He's, he understands the pain of the sin that we're wrestling with and the effects of it in this world. In fact, God has set in motion the plan to reverse all of that. Where is our God? Our God gave his son as a sacrifice on the cross to reverse the curse of sin and death in this world. That's where our God is. Because God didn't screw this world up, we did. God didn't choose sin, we did. Humboldt and Young Street. Those who use the Me Too hashtag. Those affected by things like the residential school abuse. The crisis. 9-11, the Holocaust. These, these, these tragedies, these, these global tragedies. Plus just the run-of-the-mill stuff of adultery and, and, and addictions and all the other pains and sorrows that we bear, all the other things we struggle with, all of it, listen, it's at our feet. We chose it. It's our responsibility, not God's. We don't charge God with our choices. God's actually on mission to reverse it all and to bless us. We chose the path of sin and its effects in this world and God and his great mercy and grace and love has provided a way for us to be lifted out of it. He is far from uninvolved. God is on mission to tell people that there's hope. And am I on that mission too? Am I joining with the king to tell this world that Jesus Christ is the only hope. When I'm on that mission, I bless the king. I bless the king. I must also bless him because his sovereignty is established. You see that second there in your nose, his sovereignty is established. He rules over all. He controls all. He is all powerful. Amen. He's all powerful. Now notice this in verse 29 uh, to 31 when he uh, drew near to, did you hear the way I pronounced that when I read the scriptures? 
Did, did you think I got it wrong? How many people thought I got it wrong when I read this? Baith Fage. How many people were like, yeah, that's not the way to say it? How many people? Just honestly, just say, that is not the way my pastor ever said that, and I don't know where you got that from. So I was like, you know, sometimes when I come across a name like that, I go like, I'm, I'm going to listen to the way the professionals read this. So you can go online and you just get your scriptures open and they'll read it to you. And the reader said, the ESV reader guy said, Bethphage. And I went, no, that is not right. So then I went and um, I got the Greek New Testament, and I actually looked at the Greek word, which I've had some training in that, so I can actually read out the words, and I read it, and you know what it is? Bethphage. <laughs> That's actually the name. Okay, so if you learn nothing else here today, you've learned how to pronounce the name of this little community that was just like kind of attached just outside of Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, way easier to say. Nobody's naming their kid Bethphage, that's for sure, right? <laughs> At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, okay, and then he sets the whole thing up here. You know, they're going to go, go into the village, ask the donkey owners if you could, don't even ask them, just take the donkey. And if they ask you, just tell them, you know, the Lord needs it. And, and so a couple of options here. Did he set this up ahead of time? I mean, did Jesus just say to the disciples, hey, I'll be back in a few minutes. And he went off into Jerusalem and he found the donkey owners. He said, look, two guys are going to come tomorrow. And when they come, they're just going to take the donkey. And when, um, when you see them, you could just you know, say, hey, dude, what are you doing with the donkey? And when they say the magic word or the password, there's the password, the Lord has need of it. You just say, okay, go ahead and take the donkey. Did Jesus set the whole thing up ahead of time? Or, or is this a sovereign setup. In other words, God has orchestrated this plan. Angels were dispatched to make sure that the thing went exactly, that there was no prior setup, that this is actually kind of like a little miracle going on here, a miracle of God's sovereignty. How many people are more on that program, right? And I think so. I think that's exactly what we have going on here, that, that uh, when the words the Lord has need of it, were spoken, the owners simply comply because the Holy Spirit or God's holy angels or some kind of orchestration by God, the sovereign, all-powerful one, kind of made this all happen. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this passage for a while because I totally want to try this out because I think there's a lot of things the church could use <laughs> that maybe we just can't afford to buy, and I just go and just they kind of like take that thing, just load that up in a truck, bring it back here. Somebody says, why are you loading that up in your truck? The Lord has need of it. And then drive away. I mean, don't you think that that would be an awesome way to get some stuff? I mean, I kind of wish we had done that a little bit more during the building program. But anyway, so, so I am thinking a lot about this because as you go out the south doors of this building and you just kind of look at the piece of land that's just kind of out there, as you know, we're on a pretty small property here. I would love to have that extra piece of land out there. It's all, it's storage. So Barry Machine and Welding, which is a company just over here on Ann Street, um, and they're great, great neighbors of ours, and they let us park in their parking lot at, at Easter and Christmas Eve, and so we have a good relationship with them. And, um, and so they own this property over here, and they use it for storage. But I have had it in my mind. We've talked to them about buying it, by the way, not willing to sell it. They just don't know that God actually owns it, and when it's going to be ours, it's going to be ours. I mean, <laughs> that's just the bottom line on that. But so I've been just thinking about this passage and just going down there one Saturday, we just get a bunch of guys, take the fence down, <laughs> start moving the stuff out of there and just start parking cars there on weekends. 
you know, paint up the nice little building. There's a structure back there that could be a nice little pavilion, put some grass around there. Miss Jeannie would be so happy about that, having some grass for the kids. And we just start using it. And when the owners of Barry Welding come over and say, why are you taking this fence down? We say, the Lord has need of it. Is that a good plan or what? How many people think that's a good I think we should just pray about it. Verse, um, verse 32, it's exactly what happened. So they went away, they found it just as Jesus had told them. They're untying it. The owners say, why are you untying the donkey, the colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And verse 35, notice, and they brought it to Jesus. So it just all happened. Now, there's something significant going on here. Clearly, this little story about getting a donkey and bringing it back, you just go like, why does a story like that even exist? Why is it even here? It has to be significant in some way. After all, Jesus has just spent three years walking everywhere. Why all of a sudden at the dramatic conclusion, the moving into Jerusalem, why all of a sudden for this short trip down the Mount of Olives and into the city, does he all of a sudden need a donkey? Because there is something significant happening here. And it is pointing to God's sovereign control over all of these events because Jesus riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem is a fulfillment of a prophecy that was made hundreds of years prior. And you can jot down this reference, Zechariah 9.9, and just take a look at this uh, verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we have this fulfilled, this prophecy spoken hundreds of years prior. Jesus, of course, knows the prophecy. Jesus was to ride into the city on a donkey to fill the prophecy. Now we go, why a donkey? We don't actually have a very high regard for donkeys in our society today, do we? We don't think much of donkeys. I blame that almost entirely on the movie Shrek, by the way. (laughs) Donkey could get no respect in that movie. I thought he was the best character. But we don't have a high regard for donkeys. So why specifically would God prophesy and Jesus fulfill the prophecy by riding a donkey. Well, here's the thing we need to know. For Israeli kings, this was exactly the way they would be identified. In fact, a very important story happens uh, in helping us understand this in 1 Kings 1, 32 to 48. 1 Kings chapter 1, where David was getting rather old. He had uh, ruled Israel for some 40 years, and he was so old at this point that he wasn't actually able to rule, to discharge the duties of a king. When that happens and the king becomes weak, of course, usurpers to the throne will begin jockeying for power, and it's exactly what was happening. And so David got his trusted people together and said, look, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go get Solomon, who was David's choice to be the king, the rightful heir to the throne. You're going to go get Solomon and you're going to go to the barn and you're going to get my, okay, it's not hard. Okay. You're going to get my, his, my donkey and you're going to bring that donkey out and you're going to put Solomon on it and you're going to bring him in and the high priest is going to be with him and the prophet's going to be with him. And when he comes in, you're going to anoint him as the king and he's going to be the king. 
David had this special donkey and Solomon riding it in was this powerful symbol of Israeli royalty. So that the throne would be saved and kept for the house of David. I mean, the nations of this world, we think about the kings of the other nations, they always ride powerful war horses. The most beautiful horse, the strongest horse, the biggest horse. Sometimes they'll have beautiful drapings that go over the horse, or sometimes the horse will even wear armor of some kind. That's the kings of this world. But the kings of Israel were to ride in on a humble donkey, a symbol of peace. The kings of Israel wanted to tell the world and remind each other that the power of the king was not resident in the king, but in their God. Israel was a theocracy. It was a, a country governed by God himself. The king was merely the figurehead really for God's power among the people. So when Jesus does it, when Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, everyone knows what he's doing. Everyone knows, without him even saying a word, everyone knows what he's claiming. That's what got people so fired up. They were either angry that he was doing it or they were overjoyed that he was doing it and celebrating. It was one or the other because both knew what he was saying. I'm the Messiah. I'm in the line of David. I'm the king of Israel. I'm fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. 9. I'm fulfilling the blessing that Jacob put on his son Judah in Genesis 49, which in that blessing on Judah, the tribe from which Jesus came in the line of David, Jacob talks about the scepter and ruling and all peoples, and he also talks about a donkey. It's all a fulfillment of what God is doing in Zechariah 14, he talks about further prophecies. He's, he talks about coming as king to Jerusalem where he's going to be worshipped. Zechariah 14, 16. But the sad reality of it is, and we're going to find out this in the coming days and, and even right here, that Jerusalem would reject him. Jerusalem would reject him as king. They would fail to recognize his sovereign control over them. And so the Messiah would enter Jerusalem, but over a cloud, a cloud would hang over him and over the city because of the rejection. And a prophecy would be spoken here in Zechariah 14, 11, that Jerusalem would eventually be destroyed for its obstinance. An event that was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple. And almost 2,000 years later, still has not been rebuilt. You see, the king's entrance into the city, as we've said already, it was only a partial fulfillment of the prophecies of Zechariah and Genesis. 
There's more to come. A final and complete fulfillment at the end of the age, something we still await. And everything is pointing to Jesus establishing his claim to the throne because he is sovereign. And therefore, I, as we just said in the introduction, I must become his loyal subject. And would you describe yourself in that way? Subject to Christ in every way. And the thing about kings is, and I'm not talking about the kind of kings we have in the world today. The kind of kings we have today are these figureheads. They're these, these constitutional monarchs. They're subject to a constitution. They're subject to a parliament. You know, a new, a new prince was born um, in, the, in the British line of succession. What was his name? Louis or Louis? What are we calling him? Louis? Let's call him Louis. Fifth in line to the British throne. But even if you're first in line, even if you have the throne, you have no power. Maybe a little bit of influence, but no power. But when we're talking about kings in terms of the Old Testament or the New Testament era, we're talking about a king who has absolute power. That's the king we're talking about in an even grander scale than anything that could ever be demonstrated on earth. God has absolute power and I must subject myself to him. 100% given to him. Nothing at all held back. My entire life subject to him and his word, living according to the principles of his kingdom. And when I do that, I bless the king because he's sovereign. And third, his worthiness is unquestioned. The disciples actually follow a protocol here for welcoming Jesus. Verse 35 continues, and throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it, so they're using some of their cloaks as kind of a saddle, so Jesus isn't sitting right on the animal. And as he rode along, verse 36, they spread their cloaks on the road. A couple of curious things here. First of all, we call this Palm Sunday, but in fact, only one of the four Gospels ever mentions palms. That's John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention palms. And by the way, there's no indication in the scripture that it was a Sunday. <laughs> Am I right? So instead of it being called Palm Sunday, it should be called Cloak Sunday. And since we don't even know that it was a Sunday, it should just be called Cloak Day. <laughs> if we want to be accurate to the scriptures is all I'm saying here. But what's happening in laying down these cloaks is this is kind of like an ancient version of the red carpet. They're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus as he enters into the city. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, not just the 12, but the whole multitude of disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean, they're considering him worthy on the basis of all the miracles they had seen and all the teaching they had heard come from him and all the lives that had been transformed as a result of Jesus touching them. Now recall, they hadn't even yet seen the greatest work. 
I mean, they're lauding him and praising God uh, because uh, the Messiah is coming into the dead. They still hadn't seen the resurrection. They hadn't witnessed the most powerful of all the miracles that would take place. It's the ongoing miracle of new life that brings us under the power of the king for us. The result of the resurrection that brings us new life, that ongoing miracle is a thing that should cause us to bless the king because his worthiness is unquestioned. And so what they say, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These accolades are actually taken right out of the Old Testament. Again, in a passage that would have made it unmistakable that he's claiming to be the Messiah. Psalm 118, verse 26. There's no doubt Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah here. He's the king here, it says, of peace. And to the Pharisees who are there, these religious leaders, this is problematic that he's claiming this. It's provocative to them on religious grounds. To the Romans who are governing, ruling over Israel, this is a defiant message that he's giving. He's claiming to be a king. He's defying Rome. He's setting himself up against them. It's subversive on political grounds. He's claiming to be the king. And the thing that the disciples are shouting out here, peace, notice they say, peace on, uh, peace in heaven. Peace in heaven, which is an interesting thing that they're saying because if you go all the way back to Luke chapter 2 in the nativity, when the angels came and made their pronouncement, they said, not peace in heaven, but they said, peace on earth. And it's almost like at this point, there's a recognition, maybe a foreshadowing of the fact that it's not going to be peace on earth yet. That the peace is going to be in heaven, that it is going to be a spiritual peace. This is a foreshadowing of the earth's rejection of the message of Christ. And this is the reason there's so little peace today, so much war, so much antagonism, so much enmity, so much division between people, so much strife in our lives and in our world because this world has rejected its Messiah, its Savior. And the irony is that when this is happening, the city of peace Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. The city of peace rejected her prince of peace. And we face the effects of that to this day. And because Jesus comes in the name of the Lord, the disciples are really declaring here that to reject Jesus, to reject the Messiah, is to reject God himself. And again, no different today. If you reject Jesus and his message, you are rejecting God and you've put your soul at risk of eternal separation from God. His worthiness is unquestioned. Therefore, I must worship him. I should be as these disciples were, unashamed of him, loudly proclaiming him, 
shouting to any who will listen, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And many of you shrink back from proclaiming Christ, from speaking of him, from, from telling others about him. Some of you, in fact, won't even do it in this room when you're gathered with people who have come together in his name to do exactly that, to worship him, to, to pronounce his glory, to sing songs of praise to him. And you hold back here in this room if you hold back here, what chance would you ever have of speaking of him outside of this building? Yet I think you would acknowledge if you're a follower of Christ, he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. I must bless the king because his mission is clear, his sovereignty is established, his worthiness is unquestioned, and finally this, because his divinity is evident. Jesus accepts and receives their very public and boisterous messianic announcement about him. You'll recall that he had previously eschewed all such pronouncements. Anytime someone had sought to identify him as the Messiah or as, as the Savior or as God or as the Son of God, he was always like, shh, 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 just keep it quiet. And now he's allowing them to actually shout it and declare it because the world had now, the, word, the time had now come for the world to actually consider her Savior. Now, of course, not everybody's on board with this. In verse 39, some of the Pharisees, not all of the Pharisees, some Pharisees actually came to faith in Christ, came to believe him and follow him. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Get them to stop worshiping you. Get them to stop saying that you're the Messiah. Now, maybe they were afraid of the Romans. They knew that they had kind of like a delicate peace with the Romans who were seeking to rule this really unruly bunch of Jewish people that Israel was not easy to manage for the Romans. It's testified to in history. Other peoples were far more compliant to Roman rule. And so maybe the Pharisees are just concerned, look, we got a good thing going right now with the Romans. Let's not upset that. Let's not make it so that some people are going to get killed that the Romans would have to stomp us down again. So maybe that was the thing, but more likely, and really what we see in the Gospels throughout is they were just opposed to Jesus and his message. They just didn't like anything he said or did. And this is really just the culmination of that. They were incensed by the notion that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. The Pharisees had dogged Jesus and the disciples for three full years, and now they're attempting, no surprise, they're attempting to silence the crowd. Stop the madness. You want to believe this? Fine, but don't foist it on everyone else, they're saying. Just live and let live. Don't upset the peace. And to that, Jesus replied, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, if my disciples are told not to speak, then the very stones would cry out. Now this, this is an indication of his deity. This is where he's claiming to be God. He's saying to them, I made you 
and you are my special creation. You are you have the breath of God in you. You, you. you are created unlike anything else in creation. Not the animals, not anything else in creation. You are in the image of God. And if you will not praise me, then these rocks that I made, these will cry out. Only God could claim that. He's claiming to be divine. His divinity is on display. He's not hiding it at all at this point. And I must receive him. You must receive him as your God and Savior and praise him because his divinity is evident. And if human beings created in the image of God with this built-in sense of the divine, with hardwired, whether you spend a lifetime denying it or not, you are hardwired for a relationship with God. If you do not worship him, then the very creation will cry out. God will be worshiped. And the unwillingness of people to worship him, the unwillingness of these religious leaders to accept him, to acknowledge him as the king, that doesn't negate God's claim at all. It doesn't negate Jesus' claim to be Messiah. The unwillingness of people today to acknowledge Jesus doesn't negate his claim. Jesus is king, even if no human being acknowledges it. Jesus is king. Receiving Jesus or not receiving Jesus changes nothing for Jesus. But it changes everything for us. Bless the king. Bless the king. Uh, Terry uh, Codling's over here to my left, one of our most faithful and tireless servants, one of our elders. He said to me in a text just uh, yesterday afternoon, he read through the message ahead of time, and, and um, he just said this, uh, the crowd had it right. The crowd had it right. He is God. Even if they forgot it a few days later, they had it right at this moment. But may that never happen to us that we would forget it a few days later or a few hours later. Bless the king. Bless the king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, I'm uh, grateful for uh, your word, for the clarity with which you speak to us through something as simple as this little narrative about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And God, we don't want to miss the lessons that you have for us today. And I would want every person in this room to leave here today with it firmly in their minds and in their hearts that they ought to bless the king, bless you. So Father, um, whatever needs to happen, whatever rebellions in our hearts need to be challenged, challenge those, Father. And I pray that we would be quick to repent of these things. 
Father, where we need to be encouraged and just pushed along the way a little bit, Father, I pray that we would receive that from your Holy Spirit in this moment. Father, I pray that none of us would be ashamed in any way of you. But God, that we would be so quick to stand for you, to speak for you, to shout for you, to sing for you. With all that we have, all that we are, because you're the king. I pray, God, that we would be subject to you in every way and not hesitate in any way to live for you fully. And Father, as we respond to your word now with worship, I pray that it would come from the very depths of our heart. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.